милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Over the last decade, the Baltics have reappeared on the world stage. Once again, these former captive nations are on the frontier of another geopolitical contest between Russia and the West. Headlines periodically query if the Baltics will be subject to a Russian invasion. But how real are these fears, subject as they are to media embellishment, qualification, and denial by both Russia and the West? What do they mean for those living in the Baltics and for the world? I turn to Alida Naylor for some answers. Alida Naylor is a freelance journalist focusing on Russia and Eastern Europe. Her writing has appeared in a number of publications and media. She has also traveled to all corners of the Baltic states and has lived in both St. Petersburg and Moscow, where she served as arts editor at the Moscow Times. Her new book is The Shadow in the East, Vladimir Putin and the New Baltic Front, published by Bloomsbury. Here's Alida Nadler. So I, th- I thought I'd start, I thought we'd start our conversation by first just having introduce yourself. Um, so my name's Alida Naylor and I'm British, but my name's Estonian. Um, and I recently released a book called The Shadow in the East, Vladimir Putin and the New Baltic Front about Russia and the Baltic states in the 21st century, but it also places a focus on historic memory and public memory and how that ties in, I suppose, with the contemporary, with the present day. And what got you interested? I mean, you said that your 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 la- your name is Estonian. So, what drew was that? What drew you to the Baltics? It's something that I've been asked a lot, but it's I'm not entirely sure to what extent that had an impact. Um, my primary field of interest was Russia and Soviet history. Um, but throughout the time that I followed Russian and Soviet history, um, I kind of always touched on Estonia. So I'm fairly sure that like the personal aspect had an impact on my interest in the Baltics, but I would say it was secondary to my interest in Russia and the Soviet Union. Did, did, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, of course, a lot of talk about, the Baltics in and out of the press, right? And in, in terms of, I mean, a lot of the issues, I mean, not all the issues, but in a superficial way, some of the issues that you discuss rather in depth. Um, did you did you feel a, a, a dissatisfaction with the way the issue is talked about that led you to die, do a deeper kind of study in, in your book? I did to a degree. I, I didn't feel that there were too many people 
covering the Baltics, especially in the English language. Um, I mean, there were some very, very strong local commentators, um, but a lot of people writing on the Baltics were, I don't know, based in the US, based in London, and didn't necessarily have uh, have a strong sense of their kind of local situation. And it was part of like this desire to understand what the Baltics, how the Baltics felt from the inside, as opposed to kind of this outside interpretation of them. And I mean, while I am to a degree an outsider myself, then I do also have like that slight, I don't know, I suppose, internal background slash loyalty, at least to Estonia. So I kind of wanted to try and combine all three, the external, the internal and the background in Russia, and hope I could come up with something that was maybe deeper than most of the things I'd read to date. What's the time at which I started? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, as somebody who knows very little about the Baltics and a, a lot about Russia, um, if I do, I, and this is the reason why I asked you this question, is because I do find that the the Baltics are kind of, they have no, they're not presented as having a agency uh, B, they're presented as kind of a, a playground of sorts, like a playground of Russia's or even a playground of Europe or the West or NATO or whatever, right? It's kind of this this entity that has no real, you know, as I said, agency to, to kind of determine its own fate, uh, both domestically, but also internationally. Uh, so in, you know, in your book, you know, in in your book, The Shadow in the East, Vladimir Putin and the New Baltic Front, you do try to peel apart uh, a lot of these and flesh out a lot of these issues with a lot of great interviews with people on the ground. However, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you are writing about the Baltics. And of course, the Baltics consists of three different countries. And so can you address this, you know, this problem of the Baltics as, you know, we we often speak of it as a, a single entity and the fact that it actually is three different places. So what are some of the, the differences you would point out to their particularity of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia? Um, I was actually kind of going to go there next when you brought up the matter of agency, because they're so often kind of clumped together from the outside and you don't really get a sense of there being any diversity between the three Baltics at all. And as you just said, there's a lot of diversity. Um, I guess the main ones to pick out, the main points to pick out would be um, language. That's a huge factor. So Estonia is the, the language. Estonian, the languages are Finno-Ugric as opposed to Indo-European, Indo-European, and Latvian and Lithuanian. The language languages there are more similar and not so related to Estonian, which is much more related to Finnish or Hungarian. Um, in terms of history, too, then they've had kind of They've had very different relationships with their surrounding countries. So, for example, Estonia's relationship with Sweden and Lithuania's relationship with Poland and Ukraine, uh, they've all had like, very different historic backgrounds too and different outside cultural influences. But then there's also the kind of post-Soviet period that's differentiated them from one another. Um, so Lithuania's had a very kind of limited or a relatively low proportion of native Russian speakers or ethnic Russians since the Soviet collapse, and they've granted automatic citizenship to their native Russian population, whereas Latvia and Estonia haven't done that. So how they relate to 
the kind of the native Russians there too is very different since the Soviet collapse. And there are just all of these different um different senses, I suppose, in each country. Like Estonia can feel very forested and it's kind of thought of as slow by the other two Baltic nations, but uh, <laughs> Lithuania is very like kind of big and impressive in its kind of sense of itself. Uh, and I don't know, there's just like, that they are so different from one another, despite this shared idea of being together from the outside. I, I don't know if you can answer this. Uh, this is just something I thought of because um, uh, I had a good friend who, who wrote his dissertation on, on the Baltics and, and religion in the 19th century. But my, my question actually uh, has to do with the, you know, we, we, the Russian influence is something that we're very aware of because of history, because of the, the minority, the ethnic minority of Russians who live in that region. But it, the Baltics also have a very long tradition in relationship with Germans. Um, is that German relationship st still a, a factor in, the, in those three countries? I think religiously, do you mean in terms of like the Lutheran Germans specifically? Uh, yeah, I mean, because you do have a, in in the 19th century, uh, you do have, you know, the main, the main, the local leadership that was co-opted by the Russian Empire are, are basically Germans for the most part, right? So I, I'm just curious, I don't, I don't know if you can speak to that, and it's okay if you can't, but I'm just kind of curious as to, is there a, a legacy of the German influence and presence, even beyond religion there is but i think nowadays people are looking more towards the pre-german era like just to kind of reconnect with this sense of like national authenticity um they seem to be looking towards the kind of pagan era the pre-christianity era to kind of consolidate their own sense of national identity which it is it is very interesting like um, <laughs> the way that that's growing in popularity again but um in terms of German influence that's not connected to religion, then I can't speak for that at the moment. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, that's that's actually really interesting. That because because there is a and, and this goes to the the question of you know is something you deal with directly in the book, and that is historical memory, which which just looms really large over these three states. And I would imagine this sense of you know it is about. And, and historical memory is about this, is about also constructing a historical identity, a sense of nationhood. And it, it is interesting that you have this kind of very, uh, um, pri this primordialism of going back to an earlier time. Um, but you specifically address the issue of, of the memory of World War II and the communist period. Which, which are huge things. And one of the difficult things about the Baltics, as is it is for a, a lot of the, the so-called borderland states uh, between, you know, that sit between, you know, Europe and Russia, um, you, it's, you can't just speak of a memory of, of victims. It's victims and perpetrators and all mixed in between. So talk about the complexities of this memory and the role it plays in, in, in the Baltics today. Yeah, it's very much a gray area. And, you know, I don't know, as, as rhetoric, I suppose, I mean, it's a very kind of cliche thing to say, but rhetoric is becoming more polarized, I suppose, surrounding everything <laughs> nowadays. And it's just all kinds of shades of gray there, especially in, in terms of its past. And, 
I don't know, the Baltic nations, they, they, they kind of have a tendency to equate the crimes of the Soviet Union with those of the Nazi period, which has been something that maybe West, the West, quote-unquote West, um, Americans or maybe even Brits, has a hard time kind of processing because the Baltics didn't... I mean, we were allies with the Soviet Union and the Baltics kind of suffered at the hands of both. And so one of the quotes that... Well, one of the interviewees, really, who struck me in, in particular was Felicia, who I mentioned at the beginning of the book. And she said that the Soviets were way, way worse. And it didn't... I know it didn't necessarily mean Nazis had better intentions, but they seemed to treat the locals with local populations with a degree of comparative respect. And under the Soviets, then these nations experienced mass deportations, the deaths of disproportionate numbers of women and children that Western Europe didn't really get at the hands of the Soviets. So the USSR was very much resented by the locals for its behavior in the Baltic region, I guess. Yeah, and you also have the long history of the fact that the Baltics until you know, 1917 were, were part of the Russian, the greater Russian empire. Um, so there, uh, it, it's not surprising to me on that, that front too, that there's more of an orientation toward Russia as, or being a victim of Russia or more of a victim of Russia than, than say, you know, the, the Germans. Um, and, and how does that lead into, you know, other questions that you deal with in this sense of, of course, is the memory of the Holocaust, Right. You know, as Timothy Snyder says, this these are bloodlands um, where you have uh, throughout the you know twenty first part of the twentieth century. It's just a constant you know uh, geography of war, or these nations experience war. Uh, so, how do things about the like the memory of the Holocaust or or other you know even the memory of of World War II and the the communist period kind of shape how people in the Baltics like, understand themselves? I think that it's much more present in contemporary rhetoric and just because it is so close to the present day, not necessarily the Holocaust itself, but um, the Estonian president, Kaljali, she said towards the end of last year that for Estonia, World War II only ended 25 years ago. And I think a lot of people in the Baltic still feels that feel that's true, like it was only after the occupation ended that the war really ended. But of course, going back to the Holocaust, um, then these sites, as you and Timothy Snyder just mentioned, were bloodlands. And they were sites of, they were significant Holocaust sites, which isn't recognized enough either. So there was the Cognoghetto, for example, in Lithuania. Um, and Daugavpils had tens of thousands of, well, more than 10,000 of its Jewish population. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm doing this from memory. Um, I can't remember how many Daggerpills had. I think it was over 10,000, but less than 15,000. <laughs> I guess so. That was around 30,000 Jews, I think. And Lithuania's just had a really difficult time kind of coming to terms with that. And I don't know if you read that Salon article um, by Sylvia Foti, I think a couple of years ago. And she discovered basically that... Um, Noreka was responsible for the deaths. So Noreka General Storm, he has been honoured in across Lithuania, like up until maybe the past year or so. But since it was revealed that he had personally overseen the murder of Jews when the Nazis controlled Lithuania, 
Um, Lithuania seems to have started to make a slightly stronger effort to commemorate and honour its Jewish population and strengthen ties with Israel. Like, it's not... It steps in the right direction. I wouldn't say it's, like, fully coming to terms with its own complicity in the Holocaust at the moment, but it's taking small steps, I would say. <laughs> I mean, I can see the the problem. I mean, putting aside the, the, the moral questions of all of this, uh, just in terms of trying to create a, a post you know, communist identity, a, a national sense of oneself that's that's separated, that breaks with the communist past, which they view as occupation. Um, and of course, the the experience of, of World War II, um, the, the historical materials that are available for creating that kind of shared national past are rife with controversy. Uh, and and I would imagine too, and, and maybe you can comment on this. There there's a, a bit of a the challenges, of course, is that if you commemorate, say, Jewish victims and recognize you as your your past as you know in containing perpetrators and people that are even glorified, it almost like takes away from your own victimhood that is the basis for your national identity. Yeah, and I think Lithuania especially had. Uh had a tendency if the crimes against Jews were highlighted prior to say like the last couple of years, then they would also come back with what about our local populations, you know? Um, and they do, people can feel like they are being overlooked if the idea of these, like the idea of complicity is brought up too. And also Russia feeling like it's being overlooked plays into that as well, because I mean, the USSR paid the highest proportion of casualties for the war, which I think I mentioned in chapter three. And they did essentially, you know, save <laughs> Europe from the Nazis. So there can be this ill feeling in Russia that the vital role that USSR played isn't adequately recognized internationally either. And that has to tie in too. So it's, it's an incredibly complicated scenario, even in the present day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can we see it throughout the region. The politics of of World War Two memory is just it's just rife and and controversial everywhere. And you just don't get it to that degree in the UK. You know, we don't talk about World War Two like this. Yeah, and neither in in the United States. I have to say as well. I mean, it's a it's it's almost in the United States. Unfortunately, it's almost a strange. It has its own elements of of narcissism, uh, um, <laughs> and in regard to the the Eastern Front, right? We of course glorify the Western Front and the the, the Pacific theater the most, but um, yeah, we have a hard. I think we have a hard time uh, recognizing the the other parts, you know, particularly the Soviet Union and the complexities of the region as well. Um, how how do now one of the things of course is this I, in your book is this idea of threat and threat perception both on the part of the Baltics towards Russia and then the Russia's toward the Baltics. Um, now, how do people in the Baltics see Russia as a threat? I think it's changed over the past five years or so. So when I started writing the book, it was just after Crimea or the Crimea annexation. Um, and back then, there was definitely a heightened sense of fear because even though Ukraine obviously is not a NATO member state and the Baltic states are NATO member states, then the fact that Ukraine wasn't seeing a massive international reaction to the little green men, quote unquote, coming into the east and the annexation of Crimea 
Um, I think that was a great cause for concern in the Baltic states because they weren't entirely sure that uh, the international community would necessarily respond if they experienced anything similar, despite the NATO NATO's Article 5. Um, since then, I would say it's calmed down slightly. I mean, we've got the enhanced forward presence in the Baltics, NATO's enhanced forward presence, um, which is an international group, I suppose, of soldiers from, I don't know, France, Canada, UK, Germany, Belgium, <laughs> so many different nations. And that's providing a sense of security, I suppose, to a degree. But um, also the time elapsed since the Crimea annexation and how long the wars, well, the, the conflict in Ukraine and Syria, both of those have been very expensive and difficult for Russia. And now they have to think about China, they have to think about Belarus, and the Baltics seem like they're a slightly lower priority right now. So it's... Yeah, I would say the Baltics did see Russia as a very strong threat, possibly now less so, but it doesn't mean they're any less wary of Russia. And and how is this articulated on the ground and in people's everyday life, the people you talk to who aren't, you know, connected to political structures or even geopolitical kind of thinking? It does depend on who they are and also their family too. Um, I mean, people who had family that experienced hardship under the Soviet regime, like that will almost be viscerally kind of ingrained in them that they don't want that to happen again. But there's also kind of a great sense of stoicism amongst some people. Um, so, I mean, they're aware that it's a possibility, but they're not about to give up their daily lives. They're going to keep doing their jobs, keep engaging in their usual hobbies, keep going to music festivals, you know, stuff that normal, <laughs> well, I hesitate to use the word normal, but the stuff that people do, you know, <laughs> and, um, but there are also kind of some practical responses too that have been necessitated by the past. For example, I've got a young cousin who I call all of my relatives my cousins, even if she's not like directly my cousin or very distant cousin. Um, and she was planning to go to like a survival skills festival recently before coronavirus kicked in. And there's still this kind of interest in maybe doing things in the forest, you know, learning how to make boats, um, pick mushrooms, you know, very kind of basic things that could be useful at the moment. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I would imagine too, I mean, considering this kind this effort to have a the 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 interest people are showing for the pagan times and things like this, this fits completely with that as well, right? Um now now on the Russian side, now, you know, the Baltic states are are really, really they're small states. Their populations are incredibly small compared to, you know, you at one point you actually compared them to the populations of some of our smaller American states. Um, but nevertheless, Russia sees the Baltics as somewhat of a threat. So, which, you know, is a, is a bit, well, I shouldn't say a bit strange. It, it seems strange because Russia is so powerful. Massive. <laughs> yeah. It's just this massive state. So, 
So what, how does the Russian state, and I think it's primarily state, view the Baltics as a threat? I would say less threat, perhaps, and more traitors. Um, uh, just because of this historic kind of lack of acceptance of Russia's role in World War II and the Baltic states' willingness and, well, very fervent desire to separate from the Soviet Union. Um, and that kind of all tied in with the collapse of the Soviet Union too. And so this kind, this kind of sense of betrayal that the Baltic states almost but not quite precipitated the collapse of the Soviet Union and then started hosting NATO troops, um, they're seen as, I suppose, weak points in general. And the fact that they are on Russia's borders and they are hosting, I guess, NATO troops there at the moment, then even if Russia doesn't feel like they're under threat, then they can use it as a point of rhetoric to say, well, NATO troops are kind of amassing on our borders. And, and they are, but it's not necessarily because they're about to start an invasion. <laughs> So, so is the Russian perception less about the Baltics ex itself and more about their perception as the Baltics as a state? Vassal states. Yes, there you go, as vassal states. Yeah, basically. I mean, I would say like the rest of Russia doesn't have a huge, hugely strong opinion of the Baltic states. Some, like, some regular Russians, they, I mean, regular Russians, what is that? Um, <laughs> like, a lot of them, you know, understand why the Baltics have resentment towards Russia and the Soviet Union. And a lot of them, you know, Russia's massive. They think more about Mongolia or China or Japan <laughs> or Alaska instead, rather than thinking about these tiny little countries on like the European Western border. Now, the other thing is, of course, is the, the other player in all of this is the, the, the so-called West. And that includes, of course, NATO, the European Union, both of which the Baltic, all three Baltic states are members of, uh, and the fact that you do, it does house uh, military forces from a variety of countries, as you mentioned, that are pointed against Russia. I mean, that's the whole point why they are there. Um, so how does, you know, and, and this goes back to where we started is, you know, here in America and, and seeing news about the Baltics, it's often, it's often referred to as as kind of the the opposite the way the russians kind of reverse refer to it and that is as this kind of front line of uh of you know of the of the west and buttressed against russia so so can you talk about about where it fits into the geopolitical kind of thinking of the so-called west because they are all nato members they are kind of almost symbolic, I suppose, of the strength of the alliance. So, like we said, um, there are so many troops from so many different countries there. If anything was to happen to any one of those, um, any one of those troops from any one of those countries, then that's potentially a um, recipe for an international incident and the invocation of Article Five. So it's these three countries where these soldiers are stationed that could precipitate any kind of global conflict with Russia on a much larger scale. And they symbolize, 
I guess, the strength of NATO in the face of Russia. And if that was challenged by Russia and NATO failed to meet that, then the whole alliance would be thrown into question. And that's something that maybe Russia nor the West really wants to recognize in full because Russia doesn't know whether to test it. The West doesn't know whether to invoke it. Like nobody knows what would happen in that scenario. And so there's still uncertainty on both sides. And 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 it also seems you know based on what you said a little while ago that there is a there is some anxiety amongst the Baltic states themselves that you know will will you will NATO will you guys actually have our back if something something happens I mean there's a there's a certain sense of fragility particularly for for Latvia Lithuania and Estonia because you know if Russian tanks move they're running over them right they're not running over France or the United States for that matter. Hence Bloodlands. <laughs> and there was that much cited RAND report, I think, in 2016, where it basically said, yes, Russia could take over the Baltic states in like, I don't know, less than 48 hours. And it's it's true, like militarily, then it would be pretty much impossible to defend the Baltic states. But what would follow would not necessarily, I don't yeah, I mean, this is all hypothetical, isn't it, anyway, at the moment? <laughs> so. I mean, thankfully, it's hypothetical. <laughs> um, now, now each each country has has uh, um, different, you know, uh, percentages of a Russian minority. Estonia having the largest percentage of of ethnic Russians, um, and and I always find this as an as an interesting um, issue. You know, for a variety of reasons. One is the fact that you know a lot of of ethnic Russians settled in these regions during the Soviet Union. They were either kind of pushed there or went there for a variety of reasons. Uh, many Russians went back to the Russian Federation after the collapse, but also many Russians stayed, particularly in the Baltic states. So, what is the status of the of these ethnic Russians? Let's just take Estonia for for example, since it has the largest population. What is their their status, and what is what is you know what are the attitudes toward them, both by you know the Estonians and and of course Russia too? It depends. Like it's very easy. Like it's very easy to kind of clump the whole of the Baltic states together. It's very easy to clump all of the Russians in the Baltics together when there are different groups there too. So, like you said, there were those who stayed after the Soviet collapse. Um, some of them took up Estonian citizenship and learned language. Some of them didn't. I think like around 80,000 are still quote-unquote grey passport holders, they call them. Um, and it means they don't really have citizenship of Estonia or anywhere. <laughs> and they kind of can feel like a little bit of a hostility maybe to their native countries or well to their host countries rather or the countries in which they were born because it's harder for it's harder for ethnic russians to get employment it's harder for them to integrate linguistically um, a lot of the younger generations they they learn english now instead of russian and russians learn russian and have and they a lot of them stay in calcified communities so they don't necessarily learn the local languages um then there are people who lived in the Soviet Union too, who kind of feel a connection with Soviet other Soviets, whether they were Belarusians, Ukrainians, Estonians, who all lived in the Estonian Soviet Union. And then there are people who have moved there since and have property in the Baltic nation. 
in the Baltic nations. So there are different kind of groups of people concentrated in different areas, but it, it is the, I suppose, ethnic Russians who didn't take citizenship after the Soviet collapse, who I do did find the most interesting when I was talking to them about their views. Um, yeah, they were, they felt very unloved, I suppose, by the rest of Estonia and had this kind of idealistic vision of Russia. And even if they hadn't been there, they had this kind of overwhelming desire to visit it and stay there at some point. It, when when tensions like after 2014, you know, flare or, or anxieties increase about, you know, Russia as a threat, do do they are they perceived as a potential subject uh, suspect nation subject suspect people i think they have been yeah and i i don't think that's necessarily unjustified um a couple that i spoke to were definitely very supportive of putin and were like yes you know if russia comes over then <laughs> we're joining putin's forces <laughs> um but a part of that's also i suppose to do with their treatment like a lot of people, even if they can speak Russian to them, they don't. So they don't feel accepted by people who might be able to make more of an effort accepting them than they really are. <laughs> so they, they haven't been, you know, integrated into into a kind of greater Estonia, for example. Um, now, a, a lot of the Baltics, it seems to me, and from reading your book, you know, we, we, we started with this with the past just looming, the memory of the past looming so heavily on the Baltics today. Um, but how do people imagine its future? Like what, you know, where did they see their na independent nations going and fitting into the wider region? So the Baltics have had so many ruptures that it's allowed them to be somewhat experimental in their approach. And I found that in the UK, for example, we've had centuries and centuries of self-affirming structures and legislation that can make it harder to adapt and move with changing times. So take the two-wheeled electric scooters, for example. So at present, they're technically illegal on both the roads and pavements in the UK, and that's on account of laws dating back to the 19th century. But <laughs> we haven't been able to adapt here. So I feel like these ruptures in the Baltic area have kind of fostered an experimental mentality and this bottom-up flexibility and adaptability that you don't really get in the UK. And Estonia's kind of, I mean, take coronavirus, Estonia's already been prepared for something like this by E-Estonia or E-Estonia. I think it's styled in both ways. Um, and it's digital society developments. So with the help of their microchipped ID cards, citizens can apply for government assistance, order prescriptions, get medical care online, as well as vote, pay taxes, sign documents. Another thing that the government websites over here are disastrous at. <laughs> and in 2015, then Estonia already started putting all, all of their uh, educational materials online as part of this digital initiative. And the country already had one of the strongest educational systems in Europe. So being able to adapt so easily in these recent times on account of this highly digitized society has only bolstered that. The Estonian company Starship's delivery robots have also been seen in Milton Keynes here in the UK during the pandemic. And Vilnius basically pedestrianized the entire city into this vast, quote, open air cafe, which I think inspired the Berkeley mayor to also close and repurpose streets over there in the Bay Area. That's really, that's, I mean, let me just stop you for a second, because this is actually really interesting that 
um, one of the ironic outcomes of all of these disruptions of of you know Estonia's institutional and cultural and political development is that it actually, in a way, has has freed them from the tethers of the past in the sense that, I mean, even though, you know, we've talked about how in terms of national identity and history, it's still very much wrapped up in the past, but in an institutional and political way, they, they don't have these. And here I'm coming from an American perspective where, you know, our institutions are, are sacred to the point of just, you know, self-destruction <laughs> in terms of adapting. And it seems like, in, a, in like I said, in an ironic way that, that not having these long institutions or having these institutions disrupted repeatedly, that it gives them a sense of flexibility. Yeah, I think that's incredibly interesting and it has allowed them to adapt. And I mean, you brought up America at the moment. I feel like, especially in the past couple of days, we're seeing a lot more questioning of those structures in the current crisis over there. Um in terms of the future, going back to that, um, the cross-border cooperation, we're starting to see both greater unity and disunity. So in terms of greater unity, again, with coronavirus, all of these three nations have had a very strong response, both collectively and as individuals. And I think right now they're practicing this mini Schengen area or travel bubble um, from the middle of May. And this kind of bond between the three seems to be strengthening and this is purely anecdotal I don't really have figures for this but I'm seeing the Baltic youth start to take a stronger interest in their neighbors do you see anything happening for them in the future that's not oh you're asking me I don't know oh I have no idea I don't I know very I know very little about these places to even say anything intelligent um about what their future is. I mean, I guess I could I could point it as to a, a, a kind of general problem I can I can see for the region, and maybe you can elaborate or comment on this. And that is, you know, the smaller states, whether they are Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, or Belarus, or Ukraine, or even some of the states in the South Caucasus, they are in a bit of a bind, and they're in a bit of a bind because of geography. And that is, they're between two large entities that have very large geopolitical interests, that being Russia and the EU, and then you can even include the United States in that. And they have to somehow, they have to exist in this environment. And, you know, I think one of the challenges that they have is, is I think, precisely the something that I think is what, something that is a theme of your book, and that is how do you have self-determination when your room to determine your future is being constrained by all sorts of outside entities? That's a very good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they're never going to be able to escape their geographical location in the future, no matter how much they're modernizing their own ways that are very specific to the countries. Um, it is going to be hard for them to escape that, but it's, it's a really hard question. And they have to contend with, I suppose, the difficulties posed by also integrating into the EU at the moment. Um, and that's affecting them on a domestic level in some hard ways too that they're going to have to cope with in the future. For example, outward migration is a fairly major problem. And 
population decline as a result of that. And also how the EU is perceived internally and whether that's going to be a recipe for heightened right-wing populism because there's yet another outside force that they're contending with. And and what about the politics of the EU within within these countries? Um, is it is it is it a controversial issue, particularly given the you know last couple last half decade of the EU? Is there is are they part of a, a that this wave of Euroscepticism? Um, Estonia has seen some heightened Euroscepticism in the past couple of years. Um, I don't know if you know Ikra, the. Conservative People's Party of Estonia, so they were growing in popularity in the last election. And that was fairly concerning because, well, con- maybe not concerning for their supporters, you know, <laughs> we're being relative here, but um, it was concerning because they are a very Eurosceptic party and they were forming this kind of anti EU bloc. And we're having meetings with Marine Le Pen, like they were allying with Salvini. And they're both um, fairly pro-Russian. It doesn't mean the Ikra is like pro-Russia. It means that they're anti, I suppose, anti-big establishment in their own strange way. And you do see that happening in Estonia. They've had um, around the time of Ikra kind of growing, growing in popularity and their introduction to the cabinet. Then I did hear a lot of fairly right-wing sentiment in Estonia, and that was concerning, like, why people were voting for them. But I wouldn't say it's on a mass scale yet. Um, I don't think they want to exit the EU in the same way that we voted for Brexit in the UK on, like, a mass level in either Baltic, any of the Baltic states. Yet. <laughs> and, and and what about a, another trend that you see uh not just in in the region, but also in in Europe in general, and and really actually in in many other places, and that is a a, a skepticism um, toward liberal democracy as a because you know the the Baltics, um, you know, like the rest of of states that were part of the the Soviet Union, the wider Soviet Union, you know, went through a, a privatization phase. Uh, they've they have a fairly stable liberal democratic political system um is is there also a is there a growing skepticism of liberal democracy that we see in places like Poland or Hungary or any of the other uh states it's not quite as large as it is in say Hungary or Poland i think in terms of their domestic politics there is a i, w- I would say more liberal trend, especially in Estonia. Um, Lithuania, perhaps, is still kind of struggling with this. I think, like, basically the Baltic states seem to get more liberal as you go up through them (laughs) in terms of their social politics. Um, Again, who can say how that's going to go, especially in the wake of coronavirus at the moment? But there has been a backlash, I think, just because of this kind of heightened awareness, but that's been all over the continent. That's not specific to the Baltics. So I would say not as strong as Ukraine or Poland, but there has definitely been a backlash too to things like refugee quotas and I guess socially liberal policies. 
Um, I, I want to return to to, and this is my final question. Back to this issue of of you know how we understand the Baltics, how the Baltics see themselves, and, and the problem of of self determination. You know, at the end of your book, you write the the Baltic nations um, are a victim in a way of the superpower's psychological need to manifest an East versus West polar mentality. The Baltics are not simply people caught between. They have the right to establish their own path. Now, I'm I in this this is a really I found this a really interesting statement. Um and mostly this what you you say is that the psychological need for an east versus west polar mentality and th- and this you can you can you see in Russia and of course you see this in I mean the whole idea of the west is based in this has this mentality um t- talk about this and and how how the baltics are a victim of it they don't really fit into either and neither does russia in some ways and yet it's russia still has this especially in recent years russia's been very kind of big on isolating and defining the West in opposition to itself as a nation-state. And the West, quote-unquote, doesn't necessarily refer to the East in the same way, but there's still that idea inherent, and nobody really knows where the Baltics fit into that, and it's very hard for them to kind of, I guess, consolidate their identity going back to, I suppose, what we were saying at the beginning, and to consolidate their own national identity when it's dictated on all borders by everyone around them. And, I mean, maybe psychological need wasn't necessarily the right way of putting it, but... Really? Because I actually think it fits very well. <laughs> I think it fits... I think it's it fits very well because because I I see this I saw this discourse more around Ukraine, um, and that is you know I, I I believe that the only reason why nations like the Baltics or Ukraine or Georgia for that matter take you know the three uh, ones that are in the news the most uh, they are they are important from an American perspective because they symbolize this uh idea of the west you know they in many ways they they are more they're more western they're like they're they're held up as a, as the west's potential right they they they're the ones who desire to be part of the west i mean ukraine was a best symbol of this right they they have a yearning to be part of the eu the west etc at the at the very moment where the idea of the west is under internal crisis so it, it they function they function as a yeah everything here in you know in the eu or the United States is shit, but even though it's shitty, they still want to be part of us. You see what I mean? So this psychological need is one one of self reassurance, especially at a time where you know we've we've gone through the idealism of the 1990s, right? And we're seeing a backlash against all the triumph of liberal democracy, um, and then the 
then so there's that reaffirmation need that comes from places like this but there's also the east west need in the sense of okay you have to draw a border somewhere and it's it's always very interesting to me how the borders have shifted over the last century right where the west's borders started to end you know it was in the 19th century it was you know eastern europe and then that was replicated in in with the soviet union and the iron so-called you know the iron curtain and then now that communism's collapsed all of these places that, where there's a long history of seeing them as eastern are now the west <laughs> and 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 the border shifts because of geopolitical you know institutions etc but in order to justify itself, it has to have an other, an Eastern other, and that Eastern other is Russia. And the same thing as what you said, for Russia to have an identity of itself as distinct, as, as exceptional, it needs to have that border, though it's far more porous, you know, because the, the Russians have a, have a love-hate relationship. <laughs> with westernization right so this is why i'm I, I see it as very much a psychological thing i was wondering like maybe on on a social social psychology level or on a personal psychology level which way it was more important and yeah i mean what, what you just said about how the borders kind of bleed into one another and have done over time especially in terms of shared histories and different differences in his in histories of each kind of region and I don't know, you got me thinking about like Veliki Novgorod and Viborg, like these places in Russia that have more in common perhaps with like places in Scandinavia or the Baltics than with like Moscow. And without that mentality, then how do you define the nation state? Because these places don't fit in with places that they're supposed to fit with, if that makes sense. And yeah. But yeah, I think that the Baltics definitely kind of fall victim to that because they don't really fit into these kind of neat little boxes. They're lots of different things at once. Yeah, and 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 it, this goes, of course, to the question of okay, you know, that we touched on a little bit earlier, and that is, well, how how do they determine their future? How do they, you know, part of of nationhood is a sense of self determination, and and how do you create that in a situation where you know, you are subject to a victim, which I, I, I agree with. You are a victim of these larger forces by virtue of your geography. It, they can play it well, too. I mean, in terms of getting support or providing information. Um, I mean, I don't think they do it to a massive degree, but I don't know. I'm thinking about, like, Kirsty Kaljalid at the moment, the Estonian president, and she... She hasn't held back in her interactions with either Russia or the West, and I I hate usually like saying complimentary things about politicians, but I think she's you know she's really fighting fighting for the country, and <laughs> I'm very impressed with her kind of her work so far in that respect because she's not defining Estonia by East or West, and she's really kind of I don't know <laughs> I don't want to be like a PR person for her at the moment, but she, I think she's doing a great job of like kind of getting Estonia out of that. Yeah, I mean, they, they you know, they, it's it's almost a political. At least I I see it as a political necessity because you know it's it's all nice to 
to say embrace the West fully or embrace Russia fully. But the truth of the matter is, is that you have to live there, <laughs> right? Um, and and because you have to live there and people have to live there and you do have a lot of travel uh, from Russia to the Baltic states, um, you do have a lot of interactions, whether, you know, regardless of what what each government may think of each it's, uh, each other, you still have you know, a lot of connections that, that aren't easily severed. Yeah, and she was actually, I think, one of the first Estonian presidents to visit Putin, have a meeting with him. And, yeah, and, and the other Baltics did seem to, there was some, like, backlash from the other Baltic states on account of that, but I thought it was a pretty good move on her part, frankly, because it showed that, A, she wasn't intimidated by him, and Putin does seem to thrive on... Uh, intimidation and also it is important to have a relationship with Russia at the moment you can't just shut out this massive country on your eastern border it's it's ridiculous that was Alita Naylor a freelance journalist focusing on Russia and Eastern Europe her writing has appeared in a number of publications and media she's also traveled to all corners of the Baltic states and has lived in both St. Petersburg and Moscow where she served as arts editor for the Moscow Times. Her new book is The Shadow in the East, Vladimir Putin and the New Baltic Front, published by Bloomsbury. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Разносит Джонни Кротко, а Динди и Кокотки С него не сводят глаз, с него не сводят глаз. Но Джонни он спокоен, никто не удостоен, Невинен алый рот, зажженным им пожары, На спекативе бары он холоден, как лед. 
как хрупкие зимы эти, Однажды на рассвете тоску ночей гонят. От жажды умирая, потоки нарастают, Туда вошла она, туда вошла она. Бессонницей томима, усталая от грима, О, возраст полный грез. О, жажда ради Бога, любить еще немного И целовать Кто угадает сроки, на табурет высокий Присела у окна Почтительном поклоне, ты в них слонился Джонни Он ей принес вина, он ей принес вина с тех пор прошли недели, и ей уж надоели, и Джонни, и Миндар. И выгнанный с погора, он нищим стал и вором, и это очень жаль, и это очень жаль.